Father, we come before you. Thank you that you've given us breath that we might praise you. Thank you that you have ordained and have orchestrated that we might be here, that we might hear your word proclaimed. I ask now that your Holy Spirit would come, that you would pour yourself out upon us, that you would convict us of sin, that you would lead us to see King Jesus, that you would make sense of your word, that you would make it understandable, that you would illuminate it for us. I pray that you would hide me and that you would be seen, that you would be glorified. Thank you. It's in your name that we pray, Christ. Amen. I want you to imagine something with me. I want you to imagine that since you were a young child, you have had heart problems. You knew it from the time you were young. You had sometimes an irregular heartbeat. Sometimes you could feel it out of balance. At times you would get faint and weary and you wouldn't know exactly why. Um, Sometimes nausea would, would kick in. But especially in the last year, it's become much more prevalent. The symptoms have, have kicked in, and at times you don't feel like you can even catch your breath. Your, your pulse is out of control. And it's finally gotten to the point where you have to go see a doctor. You know, you, you hate doctors. You don't want to see the doctor, but you know you got to. And so you've, you finally resign knowing that something's wrong and that you have to get checked up. And so you go in hoping that it might not be a big deal. And you talk to the doctor, and he says... We're going to have to run a couple tests. And so he starts to run tests on you. And you can tell by the look on his face that it's not going to be good. And what you thought was just going to be one visit ends up being multiple. And so he says, I'm going to have to have you come in next week. And we're going to run some more tests. And so you come in. And then the next week. And then the next week. And then the next week. And by the time you know it, you've already been there a month. They've run all the tests they can run. They've looked at every angle that they can look at at your heart. And you're sitting there in the lobby, in the waiting room, waiting to hear the conclusion. You've, you've gone through the test and you don't know. You're hoping, you're coming into the doctor's office hoping that he's going to have some good news for you. You're waiting there and the nurse calls you. She calls your name and she has you come and sit down. And the doctor comes in. And he looks at you and he says, I feel like that doctor right now. For the last month, we've been going through the book of Romans. We've been looking at sin. Paul has been looking at every angle of our heart. And he's looked and he says, is there any hope? Is there any any test, anybody that escapes it? He's looked at people that say, listen, I'm going to run away from sin. I'm going to deny that there's a God and I'm going to push and suppress him and i'm going to hope that that's going to help me get away from sin but you see you can't run away from yourself he's looked at people that say listen you know i can escape this sickness that i have by looking at other people and i can feel better about my sickness by seeing how sick they are but you see that that's when your sickness increases even more And he's looked at people that say, you know, I can escape this disease because of my bloodline. I'm from a royal bloodline. I'm a Jew. And I escape this problem. And Paul says, don't you see? It's not externals that will help you. It's not a matter of whether you're circumcised or whether you've done all of these things. For the problem is deeper. 
it's not done away with by your heritage, but it's of the heart. We've now reached our conclusion of Paul's problem of sin. If you have your Bibles, would you turn to Romans chapter 3 and read with me? Starting in verse 9, Paul says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. There's a big idea. If there's one thing I want you to get out of today, I want you to understand that all of us, that every single one of us, no one is exempted from this, but all of us are trapped, enslaved, ensnared underneath the bondage of sin. We are enslaved to it. If you're here and you're not a Christian and you're far from God, one, I want to welcome you. I'm glad that you're here. I hope that you feel loved. I hope you feel welcomed. I hope you know that you have a, a, a safe place to be where you're at. But as we journey through this passage, what I hope is I, I hope that you will start to, to ask yourself, why is there evil in the world? Why is there evil in the world? But not only why is there evil in the world out there, why is there evil in my own heart? Why is it that I know what to do, but I fail to do it? Why is it that no matter how hard I try, oftentimes I don't act the way that I would want to act? And I I would ask that as you ask yourself that question, as we process through this, that you would ask God to come, that you would open your heart, that you would invite him to show you, that you would invite his Holy Spirit to reflect your own heart to you, that he might show you yourself. Because you see in God, there's one that knows you better than you know yourself. Now, if you're a Christian, I hope that what we see is that we see the weight of sin, that we see that it is inescapable, we see the reality of it, and that it it floods us what it is and what it has done, that we might be desperate for King Jesus, that we might understand, because if we do not understand sin, we will not understand grace. If we make light of sin, then we will have not a cost of grace, but a very cheap grace. So we are going to look at three things. First, we're going to look at the nature of sin. What is sin, right? If you're a patient, the first thing you want to know is, why am I sick? What's wrong with me? And so you start asking questions. So we're going to look at the nature of sin. And then we're going to look at the effects of sin. How is it that sin affects us? What has this illness done to us? And then the last thing, we're going to look at the root of sin. What is the root of sin? Where does sin stem from? And how can it be perhaps cut off? How can it be changed? How can we be saved? Okay, so first, the nature of sin, the nature of sin, to understand the nature of sin, we have to look at where we've come from. We look at, we must look at where we've been. And so the first thing that we see is that Christians, as Christians, we confess 
that there was once a time where everything that we see was inextricably and unexplainably good. It was good beyond any degree that we can fathom. It was phenomenally good. God created all things. He spoke all things to existence and he said it was good. He created Adam, literally meaning out of the ground or man, and he created Eve, right, out of man. And he created them. He says it is very, it is very good. But in the middle of this very good story, something very bad happens, right? Sin, disobedience. Sin literally means to miss the mark. It's an archer's term. It means to miss the mark of perfection. Another word for it is also trespass, and that means to cross a forbidden line. One of the the worst descriptions of sin is it's called iniquity. And iniquity means the perversion of our inner character, that there is a perversion, a bentness in the inner character. And it's in the middle of this good story that, that there's disobedience, that sin enters. I mean, you know the story. I think all of us know the story, right? God tells Adam and Eve not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He forbids them. And the serpent comes and he deceives Eve. And Eve then passes on the fruit to Adam. And Adam eats. And the moment that he eats, sin's effects are instantaneous in that moment is it's instantaneous, is that they know that they are naked and they are ashamed. And what is the first thing that they do? They run from God. They go and they hide. There's a couple things I want us to notice about this story. Okay, The first thing that's really important to know about where we've come and the story that we just heard is that sin is a choice. Sin is a choice. right? Adam and Eve made a choice in that matter to disobey God. Now, Adam and Eve's freedom might have been different because they didn't have a sinful nature, and so they were able to choose. But here's the thing. All of us choose sin. It's something that we see and we say, I want this, I want that, and we go out and we act upon it. You see, sometimes sin is acts of commission. It's acts where we we do something, right? Maybe it's we've gone out and actively watched pornography, or maybe it's we've gone out and we've actively gossiped about our neighbor. Maybe it's we have actively been angry and harsh towards others. Maybe it's we've actively spurned the name of God by the way that we live. But all of us have done sins of action. We have actively done something, right? But there's also sins of omission. There are things that, because we haven't done them, perhaps it's we haven't, been generous. We have not seek, sought to be obedient. We know that the Lord has called us to do something, but we've, we've said no and we've pushed back and we've, we've not done what he's called us to do. There's sins of both of, of action and of, and of withdrawing, but sin is a choice. When we get down to it, sin is a choice. We choose how and what we do when we sin. And so we cannot get away with the serpent made me do it. Or they made me do it. Or it was because of my parents. There are influences and there are effects. But sin is a choice. We choose it. The next thing that we need to see about the nature of sin is that sin is like a parasite. Okay? What we see here is that there was once a time where there was such a thing as good and there was no evil. Sin is is not like Star Wars. Okay? Star Wars, you have the force. And the force manifests itself as both good and evil. Right? You know, I mean, you have the Sith, and then you have, you know, you, you have the, the Star Wars. I mean, you have the good guys, right? That come through. Somebody help me here. Jedi. Jedi. Thank you. Right? You have the Sith, and you have the Jedi. And so the force manifests itself in both. And, and wherever there's one, there's the other. But you do see that this is not the way that the Bible teaches that sin is like. Right? Just because there's sin that doesn't necessitate that there is good good right there that there can be good without evil 
And we see this, we see this, that there was once a time where good reigned all by itself, and that sin came, and sin is like a parasite. It sucks the life out of what is good. It attaches itself. And it, it, sin does not exist without good. Sin does not exist without good, but good can exist without evil. Good can exist without sin. Right? It's, it's like a lie in the truth. Right? You can, you can tell a lie only because there's something that you are bending about the truth. Right? If somebody were to say that I have a full head of hair, that would be a lie because I do not. Right? And the truth that I don't is the only reason that you can bend it. And so the, a lie only exists because there's a bending of the truth. And the same thing is that sin is only able to be a reality because it is a bending of what is good. And this should cause us great joy because it means that there is a world, there is a time where evil and sin can be taken away, where it can be undone. So we see that sin is a choice and we also see that sin is like a parasite, that it doesn't exist on its own but instead it latches on to what is good and seeks to destroy it, to suck the goodness out of it. All right, but where, where are we at now? Where are we at now? So we've talked about where we've been, where are we at now? So this leads us to talk about our passage. Um, when you look into verse 9 and verse 10, you'll notice that Paul says none, no one, absolutely everyone, all. He's using these universal terms. Right? To show that, that sin, sin is universal. Right? There is no one that escapes sin. For sin is passed down from the line of Adam and it flows through every one of us. We have inherited this disease from our parents and it courses through all of us. And so sin goes to everyone. There's no one that is born worshiping God. There's no one that's born and desires and, and goes towards God. Right? All of us, when we start out, we want to reject God. We push away from God. We want our own. And we see this in young children. The first thing they say is mine, me, give me. And you see an inward bentness, a, a, a self-absorbedness. And it's innocent, so we think it's cute. But then when they get to where they're like 15 and we wonder how in the world did this happen? Well, it's been there all along, you know? And so it, it takes root and it starts when they're young and it continues to go up. It continues to grow up. And so this means that the Bible talks about a, a doctrine. It's called total depravity. Okay, and so um, John Stott in his commentary uh, talks about this. He says this about total depravity: It is never meant that human beings are as depraved as they could possibly be. Such a notion is manifestly absurd and untrue, and is contradicted by our everyday observations. No, the totality of our corruption refers to its extent twisting and tainting every part of our humanness, not to its degree, depraving every part of us absolutely. J.I. Packer says, no one is as bad as he or she might be, while on the other hand, no action of ours is as good as it should be. I'll repeat that one more time. No one is as bad as he or she might be, while on the other, while on the other no action of ours is as good as as it should be. And so what he's saying here is he's saying that, that sin and its universality, not only does it touches every single person, but it touches every single one of our faculties. Imagine your life as a house. There is no room in which sin has not been a part of or which it is not latent in. It is found in all areas of our home, all areas of our life. There is not one that is protected from. 
You see, this is why some people put on a mask and they think, well, I'm only doing this here, but I'm not doing it here. But you don't understand, sin doesn't be, it's not contained in a corner or in a house or in a room. It floods all of the house, floods all of our lives. And so sin is, is universal. It's universal. The next thing that we need to see about sin is that this passage is weighty because it shows sin's power. Right? Sin enslaves us. We believe the lie sometimes. We, we see something that we want and we think that it will bring freedom to us. But the, the truth is that sin enslaves us. Jesus says this. He says, whoever practices sin is a slave of sin. Is a slave. It holds you in, in bondage. It holds you in bondage. There's no escape. There's nothing that we can do to save ourselves. There are... Uh, this might be helpful, but there are three P's that help me make sense of kind of a little bit of what sin is like. There's the, the presence of sin, right? And when Adam sinned, the presence of sin was brought in and, and humanity has faced it. And the presence of sin will be with us until Christ returns. When Christ takes all sin away and he destroys evil. And only at that time will the presence of sin be gone. There's the penalty of sin, right? The penalty of sin, it says, for the wages of sin is death. What we have earned by working in the field of sin is death that is its penalty but also there is the power of sin right the power of sin is its ability to hold us in bondage its weight that it puts upon us and this passage goes on and it, and it talks about the power of sin and its sin is too strong for us it's too much for us it's inescapable the only thing is I was thinking, I was pondering this in my own life, what it's been like, what I've been in that's entrapped me, that's enslaved me, is that for a, a brief while, and this is a story for another time, but I was in juvie. And I was only there for about a week, so not a very long term, but I was in there, and it was actually a moment where I felt trapped, where I realized that I wasn't getting out unless somebody let me out that I wasn't going to be able to break free or break through, that I was in there for a time period until someone came and rescued me. I don't know if you've ever experienced a time where you felt enslaved, where you felt trapped, where you felt that I can't break free of this. That's the power of sin. And the scary thing is that often it's things that we like until we realize that it's destroying us, until we realize that it's actually sucking away what is truly good from our lives. And so we see sin is, is powerful. It weighs us down. It holds us in bondage and in slavery. So we've learned a little bit about sin so far. right? We've seen that Sin is a choice. We've seen that it's like a parasite that sucks away good. We've seen that it's universal, that it touches every single person and every single part of our faculty. And we've seen that it is powerful, that it holds us in bondage and enslaves us. Now, as you read this passage, as I read this passage, there were some things that um, I had some pushback against. You know, Paul here, he says that no one seeks for God. He says that no one does good. Now, that's a pretty big claim, right? I mean, for him to say, listen, I've looked at all of humanity. I've searched it all. No one seeks God. At least for me, that was a question I had. Paul, what do you mean? Like, what do you mean? Nobody? Like, nobody seeks God. Like, I mean, at least, I don't know about you, but I feel like I've encountered some people that I feel like maybe they're on their quest to seek God. 
So how do we encounter that when people say, well, I'm seeking God, but I just haven't found him? You know, I just don't really believe. I just, you know, I, I sought, and I really have. I've sought, but I haven't found him. How do we make sense of that? Well, it's important to understand what Paul is not saying. Okay? Paul is not saying that people don't seek spirituality. Paul is not saying that people don't seek spiritual blessings. Paul is not saying that people don't want their prayers answered. Right? There's a lot of things that Paul is not saying. What Paul is saying is that nobody actually wants to encounter God himself. Nobody goes out on a search and says, you know who I really want to meet? I want to meet God. What they do is we set out on a journey and it's selfish. It's self-seeking. We want to seek what we want. We don't want to encounter the God of the universe who changes the way that we live and the way that we think and the way that we operate. And often what happens, and I see this, and I've seen this in my own heart, is that we use philosophical argument to hold off God. Is it often we get into a philosophical banter, and it's actually a way of objectifying and distancing ourselves from the reality of who God is. Now, I'm not saying that philosophy has no point or that there's no, no, no effort to be had in journeying that way, but what I am saying is that often it can actually distance ourselves and we can hinder from being in relationship with God because we hold him in an argument stance in a theoretical realm where he's in the realm of ideas rather than actually a person that we encounter that will change the way that we live and the way that we think. And so one of the beautiful things that we see here in this passage is that if you have sought God, if you have sought God, it's because God first sought you. You see, the Christian life is God's self-revelation from beginning to end. God comes and he reveals himself to us. And he gives us desire and passion to want to seek him back. Man, this should humble and fill our hearts with grace, with just love. Knowing that even though I didn't want to seek God, that he would come and that he would seek me. That he would leave the 99 and he would chase me down because he loves me. Because he loves you, that he is seeking you. And any desire you have to seek him is his gift. It's him working in you, bringing about goodness and desire from within you. So, that's what Paul means by nobody seeks God. What does he mean by nobody does good though, right? I still have that question at least. I'm just, well Paul, hey listen, I, I've seen some people and I've seen some non-Christians and they do some pretty good things, right? I mean, you've seen, I, I've seen plenty of non-Christians that are pretty generous people. You know, they're pretty kind. They're pretty nice. So, Paul, I seem, that seems a little a little harsh for you to say that, like, no non-Christian is a good person. Once again, it's important that we understand what Paul is not saying. Okay? Paul is not saying that there's not a single Christian that can't be a moral person. Okay? That's not at all what Paul is saying here. What Paul is saying here is he's using good in the context of salvation. Right? What he's saying is he's saying no one can do the kind of good that is required to save themselves. No one is able to be good enough that their efforts and their work would be ultimately pleasing to God. Why? Why? How? First, it's important to understand something about good. Good doesn't just mean the action, but it's also the motive. It's form and motive. Right? So you might do something that is really good externally, but you see what Christianity asks is, where was your heart at? Jesus asks and says, were you doing that for self-righteous purposes? Were you doing that so that others would look at you and say, what a, what a fine, moral, upstanding person is, are they? You see, when I first encountered God, be, before Christ, 
That was a pretty good guy. When I first encountered God, I realized what holiness and perfection is. Or at least I got a glimpse of it. And it's when you encounter God that he shows you who you really are in light of who he is. And it's when I saw him that I began to see my own motives. That I began to understand the lust of my love, the self-righteousness in my reading of the Bible and of going to church. And my selfishness even in my generosity. Do you see that that no one is able to do the actions of good with the motive, right? The motive that God desires is to glorify him. That is the only thing that lasts for eternity. Everything else will fade away. But the motive of why we do things is to lift high his name, is out of thankfulness, is out of abundant love. Charles Spurgeon, he tells a story. And he says that there was once a land with a, 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 a benevolent prince, and in that land, there was a peasant who was a great farmer. He, he worked very hard and, uh, and very long, and he produced great giant carrots. And these, these carrots were renowned across the land. And he took one of his prize carrots, and he went to the prince. And out of the abundant love in his heart, this peasant gave the prince the carrots, expecting nothing in return. And the prince could look and he could discern his motive in his heart. And he knew, he knew that the peasant gave him this because he loved him. Not expecting anything in return, but simply as a gift, as an offering. And the prince said, because you have done this, because you are faithful and I I know your heart, I will give you this land that you might be more faithful, that you might be more fruitful, that you might continue to produce a a crop. There is a nobleman, though, who who saw what the peasant did. And the nobleman thought to himself, and he said, you know, hmm. I wonder what I will get. If the peasant gave him a carrot, what would I get if I gave him a steed? And so the nobleman comes, and he comes to the prince, and he gives him this this noble steed. The prince looks at him, and and he says, You think that I will do to you what I did to the peasant. You are wrong. For you see, the peasant gave me the carrot. You're giving yourself the horse. And see, this is often what happens in our goodness is that we aren't really giving anything to God. We're seeking to give ourselves a gift. And this is why he says no one does good. No one does good when we really look at our hearts, when we really understand what true goodness is, when we have encountered God and we understand what perfection and holiness and true goodness is. We see how far we fall short. And we understand that we can't come into comparison with him. So we've understood a little bit about the nature of sin. All right. We've pervaded the landscape. We've looked. It doesn't look good. All right. I want to turn next. I want to turn and I want us to look at the effects of sin. Okay. The effects of sin. So where have we been? If you look at the passage, uh, it's verses 9 through 20. The passage breaks down pretty nice and neat into three sections. Okay, the first one, verses, uh, verses 10 through 12, it talks about sin's effect on the heart. Right? It, it says that sin first comes and it latches itself onto our heart. Then it, the next section goes on and it's in verses 13 through 14 and it says that sin manifests itself through our mouth. That sin shows itself through what we say. And then the last thing that it, it concludes with is it says sin affects our relationships both with others and with God. So let's first look a little bit about the heart. 
Christianity says that, that sin is not primarily actions that we do, but it's rather the disposition of the state that our heart is in. So I want to, I want you to imagine a cold, right? Most of us, we've had colds. Maybe some of you are still going through one right now. But with a cold, the really, the problem isn't your sniffly nose or your headache or your achy body. Now those are a frustration, but those are the symptoms, right? The, those aren't producing themselves. There's something that is producing them, right? You have a virus that's coming to your body and it's attacking your immune system. And because it's attacking your immune system, it's producing certain symptoms, right? And it would be kind of foolish for you to like just get really mad at like the symptoms and start just beating your nose up or like, you know, being frustrated with your body. You know why? Because that's not what's producing it. <laughs> it's not producing it. But how often do we think that that's what sin is? How often do we think that sin is these acts, that like sexual immorality or, or lying or being frustrated, that's the problem. Do you understand? That's not the problem. It's a symptom of the problem. It's the same thing with a train, right? You see a, a locomotive train. You don't look at the smoke that's coming out of the engine and think, oh, man, that's what's driving the engine. No, the engine is what's driving the smoke. It's what allows you to even see smoke. Even though it's what's visible, even though it's what you see and you maybe not see the engine, you know that the smoke is what's driving it. The engine is producing the smoke. And it's the same thing in our heart. We might be able to see these actions of sin, but we know that it's not our actions that are driving themselves. It's our heart. It's the disposition of our heart that is driving the rest of our actions. And so what we need is a new heart. It's a new disposition. Right? When we go into the doctor, not any medicine will do. We need a certain kind. And so what takes form in our heart comes and it's it's shown and it's seen in our mouth. And if you look at the if you look at the passage, if you look down in uh, verse thirteen, it says their throat is an open grave, right? It talks about it says uh, throat, their tongues, their lips, their mouth. So it's talking about all the different body parts within the mouth, and it's not a pretty picture, right? I mean, if you open your mouth and you imagine there are graves inside, there's dead bodies. It's not a good picture. Right? That's not a pleasant idea or a mouth you want to kiss. And so he says that, listen, what's in your heart comes forth from your mouth. And Jesus says the exact same thing. Right? The, the Pharisees are, are bickering with Jesus because Jesus didn't wash his hands and eat. And they're saying, you're ceremonially unclean. And Jesus turns to me and says, listen, it's not what goes in that corrupts and defiles a man. But it's what proceeds forth out of. And he says, from out of the heart come all of these things come the words that we use. And so he says, look at your words. How do you how do you talk about your coworkers? How do you talk about your spouse? How do you talk about your friends? How do you talk about, you know, the people that frustrate you? For you see, it's we look at our words and our words often are the mirror that we are able to see our heart in. And so what do your words show about where your heart is? What do they say about what you struggle with? And here's the thing. He says that we use our, our words to deceive, our tongues to deceive. And I think one of the biggest ways that we use our tongues to deceive, especially as Christians, is that we like to lie and say and let others think that we're better than we are. I see this all the time, and I'm myself guilty, is that we want to put a better portrait, a better picture of ourselves on display so others might see and say, oh, look at how good they are. Look at how holy they are. Look at how much of change there's been in them. And can I tell you, this is probably one of the most damnable lies that there is, 
because what it teaches and what I've encountered is a bunch of people that aren't Christians that walk around thinking that Christianity is about wearing a mask. That they think that Christianity is about acting like you're good when you're not. Acting like everything's okay when everything's crumbling. That you have to walk around and perpetually hide what's really going on. We need to be real. We need to be where we're at. We should use our tongues to confess and to be honest and be transparent and speak the truth rather than to deceive, to manipulate, to control We must tell people the truth of where we're at and they need a safe place. People need a safe place to be where they are, to express where they're at. Are you a safe place? Do you use your words to build up or to tear down? For out of the heart, the mouth speaks. He says it goes from our heart to our mouth and then it says it destroys relationships. Now look with me in verses 15 through 18. It says their their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace, they have not known. And so, Paul talks here, and he says that sin breaks apart peace. Right? For what is sin? Uh, what is what is the point of sin? Sin puffs us up. The basis of sin is pride. It says that I know what's best for me. You saw it in the garden, right? God doesn't know exactly what's good for me. Instead, I know what's good for me. And so I will choose my way of thinking. I will choose my way of living. I will choose my way of acting. And God, you should get on board with it because that's what I'm doing. And so we tell him this. But what's the effect of it? How does it affect us? Right? It makes us arrogant. It makes us full of pride. And so we come into relationships with other people. And we, instead of, in humility, seek to understand and relate to them, we instead demand that they change and relate to us. And so it brings conflict, it brings hostility, because there's no humility in it. And so he says that if you continue in sin, it will destroy your relationships. And and in verse 18, he kind of talks about the root of sin, right? So we change, and we, we've seen the effects, and he talks about the very root that sin grows out of. And he says this, he says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. So what is the root of sin? What gives sin rise in us? It's a lack of the fear of God. Because we have no fear of God, therefore sin abounds in our lives. Now what is the fear of God? Right? The Bible's full of talking about it. And oftentimes we hear it and we we do two things. Either we think of like it's like a servant and we cringe in fear, or we just kind of like moderate it and we think, oh, it's not that bad. It's just like respect, you know? And we kind of like put it in a category and we kind of dismiss it. But you see, it's it's neither and it's both, right? Is that the fear of God is is having and understanding the presence of God and the reality of who he is and, and having that with you always. Having that with you always. So, Psalm uh, or Proverbs 9:10 it says it says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the holy one understanding and so the root of any wise choice is the fear of the Lord in Psalm 130 verses 3 through 4 it says this it says if you o lord should mark iniquities o lord who could stand but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared right so what is he, he says God's forgiveness is reason that he should be feared, right? Because of his greatness, he is feared because he gives forgiveness. Colin brought up another one in Bible study. It's in Proverbs 8, verse 13. 
It says the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance, the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. I have counsel and sound wisdom. I have insight. I have strength. By me, kings rule. So it goes on to talk about the power of what wisdom is. But it says that the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. The thing that I relate the fear of the Lord to was when I was young, when I was in youth, I went to summer camp, right? I mean, summer camp was this really high point. You know, you kind of, you get beat up by school. You get beat up by, you know, like being around sports teams, being around all the jocks and like everything that goes on there. And so I kind of went to summer camp and it was kind of a little bit of a reprieve, you know, kind of a little bit of a breath of fresh air. But it was while I was there, and I don't know if you've experienced it, but you could just feel the presence of the Lord. It was almost palpable. You could almost taste it. And, and it wasn't just that it was an emotional high for part of it probably was, but it was more than that. It was that the reality of who God was was placed before me. And it was there that I first got a glimpse and I first got an understanding of what it meant to fear God, to have his presence before my eyes, to know that he was everywhere that I am. There's nowhere we can run from God. There's nowhere we can go. He's always with us. And so it's living in light of that reality. It's living in light of the fact that God is everywhere you go. And that both his grace and his mercy, but also his justice and his discipline follow him. And that where God is, and when we walk in sin, we should fear. No child should go and say, well, listen, I could care less. My parents are going to spank me until I don't have a rear end anymore. No, the child should heed that. And it should help them remember it's because the parent loves them that they discipline them because they don't want to walk in, in that path any longer. And so too, as Christians, we should realize that there is justice, that God still disciplines his children because he loves us, because he does not and will not turn us over unto ourselves. He will discipline us and he will bring us back. So we should fear that. But not only that, we should fear him because of what it is that he's done for us, because of his love and his grace and his forgiveness. William Eisenhower, he says this. He says, unfortunately, many of us presume that the world is the ultimate threat and that God's function is to offset it. How different this is from the biblical position that God is far scarier than the world. When we assume that the world is the ultimate threat, we give it unwarranted power. For in truth, the world's threats are temporary. When we expect God to balance the stress of the world, we reduce him to the world's equal. As I walk with the Lord, I discover discover that God poses an ominous threat to my ego, but not to me. He rescues me from my delusions so that he may reveal the truth that sets me free. He casts me down only to lift me up again. He sits in judgment on my sin, but forgives me nevertheless. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but love from the Lord is its completion. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Love from the Lord is its completion. We fear the Lord because of his love, because of his grace, because of his forgiveness. The root of sin is not living in the reality of God's presence, of all of who he is. Now, what can rescue us from this? What can rescue us from our bondage in sin? Paul says it here in verses 19 and 20, he says, now that... Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Paul is saying, you know what doesn't save you? Knowing your Bible. 
You know what doesn't save you? Going to church. You know what doesn't save you? Praying a hundred prayers of Hail Marys. All of these things, all of our actions, all of our external good deeds do not save us. He says, no work of the law will set you right before God. No amount of head knowledge or knowledge of God will set you free. It's only relationship with God. You see, there's no one that should hear the Ten Commandments and think, hey, I'm doing a pretty good job. (laughs) Nobody should hear, listen, you know, like, you shall not steal, you know, that you shall not take the Lord's name in vain, that you should, you know, Sabbath, that you should um, honor your father and mother. Nobody should hear those things and think, you know, hey, I'm doing pretty good. Because here's the thing, the law is not a checklist that that we live up to, it's a benchmark that we all fail. The purpose of the law is to help us to see our desperation and our need for King Jesus. So, what's some good news? Right? We've learned what's not. We've learned that even though we might know the Bible in and out, that it doesn't help us, it doesn't save us. Right? What does? What does? Now, Colin's going to get into this much more next week, and so I'm not going to take his slender. But what we see is that we need a great physician. You know the story at the beginning? You have a heart problem. You walk in. The doctor comes to you. And he says this. He says, I don't have any hope. What you have is fatal. It will lead to your death. Whether it's in a week or whether it's in a year, it's going to kill you. And there's nothing that we can do as far as humanly speaking, but I know one. I know a great physician. I know a great healer. And he, he is able to do all things. He will come and he will give you a new heart. In fact, he will give you his heart. He will take out the heart of stone and bring in a heart of flesh. You see, for Christ came and he was the one that did good. He was the one that sought God. He was the one that used his words to speak truth. His relationships were founded on love, not insecurity and selfishness. He kept the fear of the Lord always before him. He lived in light of it. There is no instance that Christ did something to please man rather than God. Whether it was at the temptation where Satan came, he sought to please the Lord. Whether it was when they came and they went to make him king because he fed the 5,000, he escaped And he ran away to be with his father. Whether it was in the moment of his greatest peril. On the cross. Where he could have called down a legion of angels and stopped it. Where he could have denied. Where he could have done anything but escape what God had placed before him. He kept the fear of the Lord before his eyes always. That he might please God rather than man. 2 Corinthians 5. uh, It talks about it says. For God has made him who knew no sin to be sin that through him we might become the righteousness of God. There's a great exchange that can happen. And the way that it happens is through faith. It's through faith. Faith is the key that unlocks the door to our relationship with God. So the application, as I finish our time today, I want to ask, are you walking in faith even in the midst of your sin? Are you trusting that God is good and that God can rescue? Or do you deny your sin, saying that it's not a big deal or doesn't exist? Are you belittling your sin, saying it's not really a big deal, that it didn't cost Christ his life? 
Are you seeking to escape your sin by pointing out others and their faults and failures? Or are you owning your sin, acknowledging that it's a choice? And are you seeking to take God's side with it, to hate it, to repent of it? What does faithfulness in your situation look like? What does it look like for you to walk out whatever you're going through in faith, in God's goodness, in his love for you? I pray as this week goes that you will answer that question, that whatever the struggle you're facing, that you will seek to walk out in faith. Maybe it's confessing your sin to someone. Maybe it's actually owning up. Maybe it's seeking repentance. Maybe it's acknowledging that what's there is actually bigger and more powerful than you think. And it's not something that you can just brush underneath the rug, but that you might need a community to help you walk through this. What is it for you? What does faithfulness look like? Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you speak through broken vessels. I pray for your people. I pray for our hearts. I pray that you would help us to see the power of sin. Lord, that we would understand its nature, its effects, and in the roots. And that we might put our faith in you. That we might see that there is a great physician who comes that we might be healed. That we might have a new heart, his heart. And so, God, I pray that you would reveal yourself to us, that you would give us the ability and the desire to seek you, for you are seeking us. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you. It is in your name that we pray. Amen.